0: This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. I'm going to be on the road for Thanksgiving, so today I'm posting an encore episode with Stephen Draws of the Flaming Lips. I'll set that up in a minute. First, I want to let you know that this year's 12 Songs of Christmas music mix is available now. I wanted you to have it in time for Black Friday, so I got it together, and if you want a copy... Simply email me at alex at myspiltmilk.com. And I'll send you this year's two hour mix. I'm not quite as rigorous in my mix rules as Bill Adler, who does his Christmas Jollies mix every year, or Mitchell Kezen, who not only has a no repeat rule on his Mitchell's Merry Mixes, but now also has a sub theme to further add to the challenge. I interviewed Bill and Mitchell for the show and I'll put links to their episodes in the show notes. Mitchell also has a website that is a work in progress where you can find his playlists and a contact address. Go for mitchellsmerrymix.com. There's a good chance that if you ask nicely, he'll hook you up. Google Bill Adler and Christmas Jollies. And you can find the actual uh, files, but you can find links to some of his mixes on YouTube or SoundCloud. I've taken up their no-repeat policy, so if you got last year's mix, this one is entirely different. I'm very entertained by this year's mix, and it has a lot of songs I'm happy to share. Unless you're a diehard, most of the songs or versions will be new to you. Email me, alex at myspiltmilk.com, and I'll send you a folder with the MP3 file and a list of the songs. As for this interview... I started trying to line up an interview with Stephen Draws to the Flaming Lips in 2019. And since I never got a no, I kept checking back every month or so until one day I got the word that Stephen said yes and that he'd text me to set up a time. It came out of nowhere and wasn't connected to anything to promote. And then he he texted me and said, let's do it. I don't know why he said yes, but it looked like simply he had an opening and thought it sounded like fun. I think it was. As we covered a lot of ground and talked about his love of christmas music starting with his love of vince garaldi and the soundtrack for a charlie brown christmas we'll talk about all that in a few moments here i one day hope to get wayne coin on the show to pick up some of the things that steven said about their dynamic i've always thought of him as the idea guy and a lot of the actual musical stuff came from Stephen. i'm sure it's not exactly that clean but that was why i wanted to start with Stephen because Frankly, so many of the interviews start with Wayne. Now that he's at the table, I would love to go back and pick up some of the pieces that he talks about. Because he does talk about Wayne in here and in in many ways how important Christmas is to him and how much of their Christmas activity starts with Wayne. Anyway, I'll be back in your feed next week with a new episode. I've got some good conversations that I can't wait to share with you next week. So subscribe, follow, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your feed if we're not there already. Happy Thanksgiving and on with the show. This is the 12 Songs of Christmas, my podcast talking to the people who make or love Christmas music. My name is Alex Rawls, and today I'm pleased to be talking to Stephen Draws to the Flaming Lips. Usually, Wayne Coyne is the go-to interview for the Flaming Lips, but I really wanted to talk to Stephen because he was an important part of many of their Christmas projects, including the album Atlas Eats Christmas, which is credited to, it looks like, Imogene Peace, though whenever Stephen talks about it, he talks about it as Imagine Peace, which makes sense. We'll talk about that the name game, and the album. We'll talk about that, the Christmas on Mars movie, working with Yoko Ono, and really, the surprising amount of Christmas music that the Flaming Lips have recorded. In the process, we'll get some insights into how the Flaming Lips work. One thing we learn is that the Flaming Lips don't do nothing very well, and that, all things equal, they will eventually find things to do, find work to do, or they'll start doing something that eventually turns into work. That's part of the story behind Imagine Peace, and it's part of the story behind Sorcerer's Orphan, Stephen's podcast that goes into backstage life of the Flaming Lips. And it partly explains their idea for a coronavirus concert. Sitting around not playing is, again, something they don't do terribly well. And since Wayne Coyne famously enters what he calls a space bubble to walk on crowds at concerts, It occurred to him that instead of going in the bubble himself, to put the audience in the bubble. On December 10th, Flaming Lips will play a show to 100 bubbled people in the Criterion Theater in Oklahoma City. Because that's sold out almost immediately, there are plans for additional shows. If you want to go, you should probably either haunt CriterionOKC.com or follow WayneCoin5 on Instagram... Because when they go on sale, they'll go fast again. Anyway, let's get to it. This is Stephen Draws to the Flaming Lips on the 12 Songs of Christmas. You were born in Houston, is that right? That's right. Yeah, 1969,
1: yeah, June 11. What part of Houston? Uh, it, when I was born, we lived really close to downtown, but when I was two, We actually moved out to Richmond, Richmond and Rosenberg. Okay. And After that, I lived in all the shitty towns around Houston, but never in Houston again until I was like 21. So um, just moved all around there, you know, Richmond, Rosenberg, Baytown, Needville, every hellhole around (laughs) Harris County. And then uh, actually moved to Houston after a bunch of different stuff, uh, moved there in my adulthood. So that's how that happened.
0: I, I was a kid in Houston uh wow. i just- dis- I discovered when uh when I interviewed uh, Robert Earl Keane that we actually grew up probably about ten fifteen blocks apart in sharpstown wow so he was uh he was a handful of years ahead of me he was yeah. we figure he was in junior high when I was in uh, grade school but they, we but we were started like oh yeah sharpstown mall oh yeah we're, oh no we're
1: Sharpstown Mall was a big deal because my brother when we lived in Rosenberg, my oldest brother. Would drive me into Houston to Sharpstown Mall to take me shopping. It was a really big deal, and it's like a 30, 45 minute drive, you know, from where we lived out to there. So, when you're 12 years old and you're looking for that new polo shirt or so, whatever it was, uh, you know, uh, it was really, it was really fun to go to the mall. So, but um, yeah, Sharpstown, that's crazy,
0: small world. Yeah. So yeah, one of the things we talked about, we realized when we were talking about Christmas music, was that having grown up in Houston, we had no idea what a, a roasted chestnut tasted like.
1: Absolutely not. Yeah. I, I do remember that um, I was told that it snowed when I was three around Christmas time, but I never saw snow ever till we came up to Oklahoma for Christmas when I was 14. I never once saw snow. So
0: there you go. <laughs> yeah. So pretty funny. How, how did Christmas music factor into your holidays as a kid?
1: Um, I think, my, you know, my first memory, my mom had to have the uh, Elvis Christmas album. She had to pull that out every year. So that was the main thing. We heard that every year, and there was the Ben Scaraldi, which is so seared into my brain. It has such an influence on me in, in every way. You know, there was that. Um, there was like a collection of hodgepodge of stuff, like the uh, Little Drummer Boy by uh, Harry Simeon Choir. You know, like the biggest hits of Christmas. We had all those records, and and my my mom and my dad, they loved it, and they just that was that was just part of our Christmas every year. It wouldn't have been the same without them playing those records over and over again. So
0: yeah. <clears throat> Are there any artists or albums or sort of bodies of music that you put on in your house now uh, during the holiday season?
1: We always do the Vince Guaraldi Peanuts Christmas record. We always do that. Um, what else do we do usually? We had the. This sounds kind of uh, egotistical, but we have the Imagine Peace Christmas record. We put that on a lot, and then the rest of it is just you know I, I do have I have the old Elvis vinyl on, uh, Christmas record on vinyl. I've got a uh, Dolly Parton. Vinyl thing, Christmas music, a hodgepodge of stuff. But the main thing is the Vince Guaraldi, and then I'll just make a playlist on my computer or iTunes or whatever, and that's just all over the place. So,
0: did Vince Guaraldi have um, any influence over uh, Imagine Peace? Well, yeah, one hundred and ten percent. It's it's
1: um, you know the, the, this whole thing started when uh, you know hearing that when I was growing up. And a lot of his music is really complex. It's complicated, you know. It's harmonically very interesting and stuff. And as I started to learn more about music, I started to study his music and try to glean what I could from his stuff, you know. So by the time I get in my early twenties, I'm learning like major ninth chords and you know uh, thirteen sharp eleven chords and stuff like that. And then I would take Christmas songs that I knew and try to kind of reharmonize them in a Vince Giraldi style. And then Years later, I'm doing that and became something I would do every year. And uh, Wayne at one point was like, maybe you should just make a record of that stuff, you know? Like rearrange all these Christmas songs that you love, put some weird instrumentation, and we'll give it a story." And and that's kind of how it happened. But I would I would say that really does stem from my love of Vince Garaldi and how much he's just seared into my brain. You know, just the mood of it. It's just got such a
0: delicate, nice mood to it. Yeah. Yeah. So the Imagine piece. So that those started off as just. Thing, things you were doing for yourself?
1: Yeah, I would, you know, every uh, every year around Christmas time, uh, I would start getting into my Christmas music. And I, my project every year is I, I try to reharmonize like a Christmas song that I love. So the first time I ever did this, I was like 21 and I did uh, White Christmas. I reharmonized White Christmas. The version on the Imagine the Peace is not what that was. but um, And then a couple years later, I reharmonized a Little Drummer Boy in a Weird Way Kind of like what Vince Guaraldi does with Vince Little Drummer Boy, He's got the moving harmonies underneath it. I would I would I would just do that on my own for fun and you know I'd have Christmas parties and people would come over and a couple of times Wayne just would be like because Wayne has to he has to do stuff he can't just talk about stuff you know I can talk about stuff (laughs) I can just keep talking about stuff endlessly and never do anything about it but that's not how Wayne works so he's like you should just you know do something I can record at home so do something at your house and And put some, you know, other instrumentation, though, so it's not just piano, and we kind of arrived at this kind of vaguely, you know, vaguely Indian, some Middle Eastern vibe to it, you know, whatever you want to call that. And then he came up with that whole story of the woman who uh, committed suicide, but her recordings were unearthed from the early 1970s in Iraq, you know, so... yeah so he put that he put the story together and kind of the imagery but yeah i've been i've been doing that thing for many years before i actually started to sit down and record those things so it's a long time coming <laughs>
0: In addition to Vince Guaraldi that I was hearing sort of like living strings and some of those kind of like hi-fi stereo test records. um, Was that also a part of your musical Christmas background? No, not that. I wouldn't say so. Um, I mean,
1: maybe there was other stuff like Mannheim steamroller, but I don't really hear that in there. Um, I think to to my mind, it was like this Vince Guaraldi-esque piano And then traditional upright bass and, you know, jazz drums. But then you'd have this drone of a sitar. And then I had this uh, weird instrument that's actually a synthesizer patch. But if you look, I don't know if you had the CD or the record. If you look on the inside, it's got a picture of this crazy-looking, clearly doctored photo of this giant synthesizer. And I named it the uh, Laughing Crying Glider Synthesizer. And that's that instrument that plays through all the songs, you know um okay. so that was more like uh based in i, I don't know like rick wakeman or something I, it doesn't sound like rick wakeman but it, because of the sound but you know those kind of synthesizer techniques but uh, to answer your question the the strings uh, what did you mention the string what was it um, like living strings oh, living strings and- right right yeah w- i wouldn't say so much that but you know because that all the strings and stuff you hear that's that's samples it's not real I'm so like i conducted an orchestra and recorded it but that would be more like you know, Frank Sinatra, um, you know, Nelson Riddle kind of uh, sounds
0: or some
1: Bill Evans, you know, it's just a hodgepodge of stuff. So,
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you why. what I hear in that is the mood of so many of those records and that as much as we give Vince Guaraldi sort of credit for introducing uh, sort of melancholy to Christmas music, that you go back and hear some of those things like the living strings or the, uh, the Jackie Gleason Christmas albums and the Jackie Gleason album is the loneliest Christmas album I've ever heard. You know what?
1: I've, I've got to um, tell you, I don't know that I'm going to make a note of that right now. So Jackie Gleason put out a series of Christmas records or just one?
0: I think there's two. Wow.
1: And what the, is, what the Jackie Gleason.
0: Role? It's completely unclear. It is part of what part of what I lo- it started off as this mystery to me because I' not I'm not sure he plays an instrument. He's not credited as the arranger. I don't know that he was conducting and he's not clearly not one of the voices. But um, the songs are all like glacially slow. and they're so often just have these banks of disembodied voices that are just kind of cooing whatever the, mel- uh, the melody and i used to live uh about an hour outside of toronto and hearing this music there like late late at night around christmas you couldn't tell if it was like the wind blowing snow outside or if it was actually the music that sounds great and so there it's awesome
1: I don't know that at all. I don't know the Jackie Gleason. I just like the idea. Maybe he got all these people together and he said, I'm going to put my fucking name on it and maybe I'll make the money for it. Or something. I don't know. <laughs> I think it has
0: to be something bizarre. like that. It, it really sounds like, because there's, there's actually a lot of Jackie Gleason records. There are Jackie Gleason records for lovers. Uh, there's yeah, Jackie Gleason. Exotica. And yeah. Yeah. And the only, con- I didn't know that. The, the, and the one common thread is that they are slow and they're instrumental <laughs> with just these, Sort of ghostly, cooing voices uh, taking care of the melody. So what Christmas project came first for Uh, y'all?
1: Good question. Let's see. Um, Let me think for a second. I remember we did an in-store in Minneapolis. What was the name of that record store in Minneapolis? Oh, man, I'm losing my mind. We did Little Drummer Boy live at a record in-store. This was like 1993. And that got released on a single so it was just that that right. that little thing. It wasn't a big major thing, you know. Um, and then I know we did a couple. Let me stop you. Yeah.
0: I, can I stop you and ask you about that? Yeah. Because because I because I've got that, and I was listening to it, and I was trying to decide when I was listening to it if that was if that was a you know a Christmas song when what time of year that was recorded if that was recorded around Christmas or if that was. Like in like July, no. Wayne thought, "Here's the most odd thing I can get people to do: no, we were, is to sing along." Right. Go ahead. No, well,
1: we were on tour, and uh, it was late November, so Christmas season was definitely ah. upon us. You know, and you're up in Minneapolis, and it's snowing, and it's really cold, and the are Christmas lights. It's really got that vibe to it, you know. Um, and it was just something we talked about. Like, you know, we got to do something else for this in store to make it cool, so it's not our just our usual set. And I don't know how we decided on Little Drummer Boy, but we decided we wanted to do a Christmas song, and that's the one we decided on, and that was our first kind of foray into something like that. Um, and then it just got more complex over the years, but I think that's the very first thing we ever did. So I'll do it if some of you guys will sing it, too. We screw up the words. You know, you get the,
2: you get the feeling out the whole. It's kind of like the, uh, the one that's on the uh, Vince Giraldi's. All right, change the
1: key.
0: So which came? What came next? Was it? Uh, I know a change of Chris, a change at Christmas came out in 2003. But since I know also I know Christmas on Mars was an ongoing project, I'm not sure how you know which of those kind of comes next or in the uh, in the chronology.
1: Okay, yeah. If you want to get into that, that's, that's stuff that's really easy for me to get into. Uh, the Change at Christmas, say doesn't so, was tracked in the spring of 2003. Came together really quickly. We didn't spend a lot of time on it, Uh, just kind of, whether you like it or not, it, it was kind of, you know, it wasn't hard on us to record or anything, and it was chosen for Elton John Christmas Compilation. Meanwhile, we'd started Christmas on Mars in 2001, really, and obviously that didn't come out for several more years, so... We would have been working on uh, "Change at Christmas" eight not so while we were working on "Christmas on Mars," but those two had nothing to do with each other. So it was just a completely opposite, not an opposite, a completely independent, separate thing from the "Christmas on Mars" stuff. So,
0: what's the story behind uh, "A Change at Christmas"? The story of you mean how that, how that song came about?
1: Um, I thought it was because no, no, because it ended up on an Elton John's Christmas compilation a little bit later. Um, I think it may have just been. I I may I could be wrong about this, but it may have just been a B side that was going to be on one of the singles that was coming after Yoshimi, but I can't be sure. Man, um, now I can't remember. I'm getting things confused. No. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, sure. it would have been for yeah like a B side or one of those singles that because we after Yoshimi came out, I think we did three or four different kind of CD singles or whatever you want to call them. Right. And it was, that would have been in the flurry of those B sides. And then somehow I forget how it happened. It ended up on a Warner brothers compilation. And then it ended up on Elton John's favorite Christmas songs of 2004 or something like that. So
0: I've, okay. I've kind of forgotten about that
1: song actually. So.
0: <laughs> so, so, so not that, so that song was not, didn't make that big of an impression on you.
1: Not really. Um, you know, it's pleasant enough. I wish, um, because the way the music came together, uh, I was still living in, up in Fredonia, New York, which is close to Toronto. Um, right. I was still living up there, and I'd sent that basic track to Wayne, and he just sang on top of it. Whereas I wanted to come down there and actually work on the tracks and mix it better, and then have him sing on it, and we could do do a mix together. But he just took the track I sent him, like an MP3, sang on the top of it, and that was it. And I just wish we could have spent more time. I don't, I don't dislike the song itself. I just wish we'd spent more time uh, in the production of the song, though. So. That's my only complaint. Yeah. really. Yeah. Okay.
2: Okay. Alright, here we go. Hey Andrew, you ready over there, huh? I'm all set. Man. Hey Richard, you good, huh? I'm ready, man. Let's do it. Come on. Hey David, you're good, huh? I'm feeling good. Well Mike? Let's do all
1: right, it. Alright, here we go. I think everything's
2: gonna work out just fine. I can see it. I can see it ahead.
0: the next thing really was would have been Christmas on Mars, right?
1: Well, there might be some stuff before that though. Let me let me go through the years here real quick. Um I mean, really imagine Peace came out originally in the winter of 2007. So that was actually before Christmas right. on Mars, but um yeah, all through that time working on Christmas on Mars and that that mutated quite a bit, you know, like the stuff that I did toward the end of it was more almost more traditionally based stuff that sounded like it was an influenced by Stravinsky or something like that. Whereas the earlier stuff sounds more ambient and, Eno esque or, you know, Tangerine dream or something. I'm not sure if you get any of that vibe in any of that stuff. And that was the stuff that Wayne had more a hand in, which in some ways I prefer that stuff. It's just weirder, you know, it's not so like, Oh, here's a big orchestra playing these big chords or whatnot, because, um, you know, he, Wayne would say, like, can you do something like the, uh, you know, that one movement of oh, uh, not the rights of Spring. What's the other big one? Um, what's wrong with me? Um, the Firebird, yeah. The next to last movement of Firebird. He's like, can you do something like that? And in my mind, I kind of not copy it, but I definitely use that kind of blueprint, you know where it seems like a lot of stuff he creates on his own, he might be influenced by something, but it's just going to sound wacky-dacky compared to what I would do. So, And I like the mix of all of it together, but um, it definitely changed from the more simplistic musically, weirder stuff that Wayne had a hand in to the later stuff, which is more traditional. Yeah. I'm, not sure if, I'm not sure if I answered any question for you there, but uh, it, was a, it was a really long process. You know? I mean, the, first, the first stuff we did was uh, early spring of 2001 up at Dave Freeman's studio in Fredonia, and the very last thing we did would have been i think spring of 2008 so it was a long you know back and forth there so <clears throat>
0: imagine i realized while watching the movie and then listening to the record again and realizing obviously a lot of the music doesn't you know doesn't necessarily cross over that some music like yeah all the stuff with silent night i think only exists in the movie and doesn't exist on the album all right yeah that's right that's true yeah Mm
1: -hmm. yeah so um and that you know that just happens with movies and soundtracks anyway i think there's a lot of music that's on the soundtrack that you never actually right. hear in the movie. You know, you might hear 10 seconds of it, but you're not hearing the whole piece, you know? So, and that's just kind of how that goes, you know? So, um, I, I really don't like the movie. Uh, Wayne and I have talked about this cause I think my acting is uh, fucking uh, horrible. Uh, and, and Wayne says it's not bad, but I, I think it's really terrible and people seem to enjoy it, but I can't, I really can't watch the movie, but I, I like a lot of the music. Uh, quite a bit uh, so. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Plus, I gained, I gained, I gained like thirty, thirty pounds over the course of the shooting <laughs> of the movie. So there's some continuity problems. <laughs> yeah. So there's that too. I, I have so, to say, yeah. I was
0: watching it uh, recently to, to prepare for this, and I was thinking, this is the most meta movie about like, we're not, not to say meta, but someone trying to make sure that Christmas is okay for everybody in the most unlikely context possible.
1: I hadn't even given it that much thought you know um, <laughs> uh, uh. yeah he, yeah Wayne I mean I, I love Christmas, I love Christmas music, but Wayne man he really he, he goes full on Santa he gets a big bag of gifts and he drives around Oklahoma City and drops on people's porches and he's really into it you know he, he really enjoys Christmas too like to a very intense degree and it's, it's pretty fun to watch so that happens every year.
0: Oh that's great <laughs> how did how did Silent Night? become sort of the one nod to traditional Christmas music in the movie?
1: Um, I think it was just, it was the easiest, not the easiest, but it seemed the most, not obvious even, but it just seemed like a, a good choice for if Fred Armisen was going to sing something by himself. You know what I mean? If he just had to start this little sing along of something, something that could work for him and, and, and a song that everybody knew. And it was basically just that. So does that make sense?
0: The Yeah. Yeah. Yeah and and you also then also quoted it gets you know just you know, musically quoted in the in the scene where the one guy is like crying a bloody tear. Oh, I'm trying to remember that. What what is that? Silent Night is
1: is played there?
0: Yeah. Yeah, you get it instrumentally as oh, well. Oh, okay, that's time. right. That's right. Yeah.
1: But that's and that's not on the soundtrack. Right. I see what you're saying. So are you right. asking about the origins yeah. of that
0: or I just, well, just that just you said it appeared once now like it actually appeared two no, or three times which is why i was just sort of like yeah
1: you're right you're right checking
0: to see if that song if it was just a matter of that it is you know some in some ways one like the christmas song or one of the handful of sort of 100% iconic christmas songs or if there was a reason behind the choice of that I, it w- in addition to um, front it Fred would be that
1: because that's a song that i mean man everybody everybody knows silent night that's just a really There's no way around that. It's an iconic Christmas song, very easy to remember melody and catchy. And it was easy for him to do. You know, I don't think uh, he he could have sang anything and it probably would have worked. But I think we said try Silent Night and we'll we'll piece it together after what we'll figure out what you do and we'll piece it together. So, you know, a lot of these things are you just do them and they just happen. There's not really a big plan. You know, so
0: is is that the Flaming Lips way to have sort of three or four projects in various states of completion always going on at the same time?
1: It it seems like we've
0: worked that way mostly over the
1: years. Um, I would say 90% of the time, yes. There's at least two or three things going on at the same time. Right now, because of COVID, you know, we had a new record that came out in uh, September. We're not able to tour for it, so we're all kind of in this weird limbo right now. But uh, Wayne is working – he's always working on art and stuff. And I think he's trying to figure out a way for us to do shows that are uh, socially distanced – safe – where everyone in the crowd enters their own bubble wow. and you're just in your own bubble. And he's working on that right now because even if things go back to normal, all our shows at the earliest have been rebooked for an hour, uh, sorry, a year and a half later. So, you know, like my income this year took a pretty serious hit So we're, we're, he's trying to figure out a way for, for us to start doing shows again. But if that wasn't happening, we'd be working on new music and we have this podcast we do. I don't know if you yes. are aware of that. Um, yeah, oh, I, I guess that's part of it. Yeah. Um, we're going to start on the next podcast, I think probably this next week. Um, but it's been a little chaotic because of the power going out and COVID and all that. But, yes, to answer your question, there's always two or three things happening at the same time, usually, yeah.
0: Since you just mentioned the podcast, I should also say, what what got that project started? Um, okay, well, let's see. I'll
1: try uh, Long story short. Basically, um, I did a podcast called The Trap Set with this guy, Joe Wong. He's a... Um, Great musician, knows everybody, lives in Los Angeles, and he has this thing called The Trap Set, and he's interviewed some pretty iconic drummers. I mean, a lot of people across the spectrum, you know, like Bill Ward from Black Sabbath, you know, Janet Weiss from Sleater-Kinney. I mean, everybody, you know, he just had everybody on there. And uh, I did his podcast with him, and uh, Wayne listened to it, and he said, man, you have a really good speaking voice when you are answering the questions in this kind of calm demeanor. You should do your own podcast. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea, you know, and I walked off whatever Couple of days later, he's like, "No, really, we're gonna, we should start on your podcast." I'm like, "What is my podcast <laughs> going to be?" <laughs> and he goes, "Come on, think about it." So it kind of stemmed from there. It was like it was actually something he asked me to do, and once we dug into it, um, it was it's actually kind of fun. I mean, it's a lot of work, and we do it all ourselves. It's just me and him at my studio at home, and we do all the content and all the editing and the recording and the t- you know, all of it. So it's a lot of work, but it's it's pretty fun. I'm not going to tell you what the next one is going to be about, but we start on it next week I think, so. Okay,
0: cool. On uh on Imagine Peace, you do uh <laughs> Atlas Eats Christ- uh when you say do you say Atlas Eats Christmas or Atlas It's Christmas? How do you think of that? I song? say Atlas Eats Christmas. I say at Atlas Eats Christmas, but it's it's meant
1: to be either either way, so. Sure. You know, I like the more exotic sounding pronunciation, you know. Imagine peace, you know. Imagine peace. At last, East Christmas. At last, it's Christmas. Thing. Right. You can say it, say it however you want, but I like the more kind of exotic uh, tone of it. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until it wasn't until paying attention to the song that I realized that it you know that it's sort of an exotic That's pronunciation what? of "At last, it's Christmas." So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, right. Well, good. That's that was kind of the intention, you know. So. And the same with Imagine Peace, you know. It's like, oh, what is this exotic sounding or looking word? It's like, oh well, it's just it's just a message for that, you know. And you know, there's the version that's on uh the Imagine Peace Imagine Peace record. And there's a version we did with Yoko Ono and Sean Lennon. I'm not sure if we we're gonna talk about that song or not, or if you had it on your list of stuff to
0: that was to discuss. That was what I was about to ask you about right now. That was next. Okay. So well,
1: which came first. Yeah. Uh the one on the imagine imagine peace record originally. That that was done in 2007, the version, it was, it was on the the very first version of that record. Now, over the years, I added a couple of songs as it went up until 2013. And I think that was the last year I did a new song. I I could be wrong though. But um, so 2011, we did that version with Sean and and Yoko at Sean's studio out in kind of upstate New York, kind of in the middle of New York state and this crazy complex farm they have out there that yoko and john would live in sometimes and they still visit there so we were able to go out there and record there and we just thought um we liked the version on the record but i think wayne wanted to give it a bigger a bigger um identity you know or a bigger existence somehow so that's how that was decided upon and um it was a lot of fun doing it actually with them To take uh we were hit at his place for two days I think so um, and you know a lot of times for us if we're we're building something from the ground up from scratch and you're kind of writing the song as you go, it could be a lot longer of a process, but the song already existed anyway, you know, and we already knew how it was gonna go. We just had to figure out how to get Sean and Yoko or whoever in there. But building the song itself was really uh, really easy. So it was it was just mostly a lot of fun. And we got to stay in their their house. Um, I actually got to sleep in Yoko's bed. in in that house and it was crazy and we were like walking past this collection of records and we were staring at it he's like that was my dad's record collection when he died that's exactly what he had wow what a trip you know Yeah. yeah so it was it was a it was a pretty magical experience you know i mean between just being there and then being in the recording studio and all the great equipment and everything it was just it was a blast so yeah good memories there
0: was it a challenge or was did you have a moment when you had to like ask yoko to do something i mean someone who who is who's a genuine legend it can be intimidating yeah um the thing is is
1: uh i've got to bring wayne into it again he's not really intimidated by celebrities and stars I, i just it's a weird thing um and he would ask sean to ask her to do specific things, if it got awkward, he would just talk. <laughs> yeah. If it got awkward, he would just talk to Sean, and then Sean would would talk to her about it. But she was really, she was cool. I mean, she was just she's Yoko Ono, and she's like you expect her to be, but she's also really kind. I mean, not that you don't expect her to be kind, but she was really cool about doing anything. So yeah, we were just wow, you know, happy to happy to be there and. Uh, happy to work with her and she'd done a live performance with us before that i think uh, i think in oklahoma city was it 2010 or 2011 oh I'm, I'm getting my years confused but i think we had done something with her before that and we'd already known sean for a little while so uh it wasn't mm-hmm. with that you know it was in the realm of possibility that we could ask her to do something and it wouldn't blow up in our faces or something you know what i mean so yeah right yeah <clears throat>
0: yeah she yeah she was on heady friends
1: right yeah 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 and that was uh, a couple years later obviously but we did a show New Year's Eve show. I think it was 2010 and she, uh, played with Sean's band. Now I'm, yeah, I'm getting all these shows confused. Cause we did a bunch, we've done a bunch of shows with Sean over the years with his different, a couple of his different bands. So, but, um, yeah. And then she was on Hattie Flynn's as well. So,
0: yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So I have to tell you, I was, uh, I covered the 24 uh, hour tour for spin. Oh, Okay. So so I was at at all the shows on that one and traveling on the uh, on the bus following you around from show to show. Were
1: you okay? You weren't on the MTV bus with Jackson Brown and all those people, were you? No, you're okay. No, you're
0: no, they weren't. They weren't letting us anywhere near. Uh, <laughs> I mean,
1: uh, you know, the, the, some of those shows were so ludicrous. But you have to agree with me that the wor- the most absurd one was. Uh, What's the small town in Mississippi? We played at like 30, 7 o'clock in the morning as the sun was coming up. Hattiesburg. Hattiesburg. So we're driving into town. So yeah, bizarre. we're driving into the little town. And you see there was like a guy with a beer vendor in the street. There's all these people in the streets. And then we set up on this tiny stage. And Derek goes to play the first chord of the song that we're doing. And Jackson Brown's standing in front of him. And I saw Jackson Brown visibly. His his shoulders went down. And he... he 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 actually had a physical reaction to how loud it was. And I was like, oh man, we're really we're giving Jackson a hard time here, you know. But he was he was such a gentleman. But now I'm I'm rambling. But yeah, that was a that was a oh. weird deal there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, that one and the one before the, be- uh, the beauty for me in that one was that a uh, a guy from Louisiana, Hunter Hayes, a country singer, young country singer, opened yeah, I remember uh, that. that Hattiesburg show. Yeah. And there were I was standing right next to the stage and I watched these two girls in the front who were just melting (laughs) in front of Hunter Hayes. And afterwards, MTV got, I guess they must have seen it too, and they got one or two of these girls next to, to go up and sit on the bus with Hunter and they were almost unable to talk. They were so excited and just so starstruck and so in love with Hunter Hayes that was awesome.
1: Yeah, we were just like who's this punk cuz he was like can I join you guys on do you realize or whatever. It was like yeah, you can if you know the song. He's like, well, I, I think I know it enough." And I guess he doesn't know it well enough to have, to know that it has a pretty radical uh, key change right in the middle of the song, you know. So he's just <laughs> he's just kind of soloing through the whole song as it's going by and then does that key shift and he's just like he's just playing shit there. You know, we're like, what the hell is he doing? He, he didn't, he didn't make much of an impression on us. So it was just more bizarre than anything else. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, it it was, it was, it was all about the star moment. Yeah. And, and the other one is, was the one in the middle of the night. I think that was Jackson uh, with,
1: uh, Oh, neon, neon neon Indian. Indian. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Mm -hmm.
0: And that one was just so late that it was like, I still am, I'm not entirely sure what happened there because it was just, it was sleepy and the crowd was, the crowd was all so die hard at that point. And uh, it all felt, it it all felt very fluid. The the misery index for us at
1: that point was pretty high, you know. Um, And then the air conditioning had gone out on our bus, not both buses, but the bus that most of the band was on. And it was just, luckily it was at night. It was miserable. By the time we pulled into Memphis, is that the last show Memphis or new Orleans. No, it was new New Uh, Orleans. Yeah. New Orleans. By the time we pulled in new Orleans, the the AC was still out. We were all just like, fuck this man. Let's just get this over with and be done. You know, it was a, it was a pretty Uh, crazy experience, but yeah, Jackson was with neon ending, but I can't remember what we did with him. Um, I I don't actually know. Some of those are just a blur. You know, I can't remember all the
0: cities we played. So Jackson, you did, uh, these days. Oh, Neon Indian, you'd, um, I can't remember if what cover you did. I know you did the Bowie song for the, the. oh no, you did a Bowie song. You did Heroes. Because that was kind of a Bowie theme, because you did a, uh, the, was it just David, dying. David Bowie Dead or something? It's David Bowie Dying, yeah. yeah. Wow, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Oof. Yeah. And then, and so you did Heroes with Yeah, that.
1: and then we did um, These Days in Hattiesburg with Jackson.
0: Yes. Which was great.:
1: Okay, thank you for saying that. I thought it was kind of a train wreck, but if you if your perception as a, as a person observing and the audience watching and listening and judging, if you thought it wasn't a, a terrible mess, then I'm really glad to hear that.:
0: <laughs> Well, it was well, it was both. It was great because it was it, it was live and it was something I really kind of never thought I would see Jackson Brown mm-hmm. in, which is a moment where it's being negotiated live in front of me. Um, and where there's a whole lot of like decisions that are being made on the fly, some good, some bad. Um, <laughs> th- that made it, it was so, that, it, that was so much more interesting than if it had just been as completely to get up there, stand up there and sing this song Wait. as if this was any other normal time of day or any normal Well, show. the,
1: the cr- crunch time for me was like, "Are oh, we're going to play these days. Well, should we do it in your original key? oh no man you, if you'd like to do it if you know it in the Nico key you know that's cool you don't have to do it in my original key I'm like what are you more comfortable with uh, you know um, you could do it in the Nico key I'm like we're gonna do it in the Nico key because that's kind of how we learned it and he's like uh, okay <laughs> like what do we do here you know <laughs> someone's gotta decide you know and it just that's such an incredible song you know I mean I can't believe he wrote that when he was 18 years old. It's kind of mind blowing. But yeah, he was just so gracious. And I wish he would have kind of put his foot down and said, Fuck you guys, doing the key of F effort, don't do it at all, or whatever, you know. So, um, but he was a consummate professional and gentleman. On one of the uh, between what I forget which two cities, I got on his bus and he just started playing his SG guitar through this little super amp, and it was like liquid gold. It was like, oh, this is what a real Professional, badass musician that's been playing for 40 years, 50 years. This is what that sounds like. It was pretty incredible. It really was. That's great. And he still sends us Christmas cookies every year, all of us. Excellent. (laughs) Speaking of Christmas,
0: Uh, yeah. uh, 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 Exactly. (laughs) Christmas thing I'm aware of from you was when you did a cover of uh, the Bing Crosby and David Bowie duet piece on earth, Little Drummer Boy. Oh yeah, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you see that when it happened on television? You know, I think I may have, but I can't be sure,
1: so I don't want to say. I was was old enough to definitely have been watching TV with my family when that aired. It was 77, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, But I can't say I actually remember it for sure because... I've seen it so many times since then. I can't remember, you know, it's like uh, every Halloween I watch uh, kiss on the Paul Lynn Halloween special that happened in 1976. Yep. And I remember that when it happened. So my mom let me stay up late and it was a really big deal. And it was a really big deal to me. I was in second grade. So that's seared in my brain. Whereas the Bowie Bing Crosby, I've seen it as many times as the kiss thing, but I can't be sure if I saw it. The first time it aired, <laughs> right? <So. laughs> it, it is beautiful, though. I really love that their version of that. And have you seen the Will Ferrell, John C. Riley uh, spoof of that?
0: Yeah, okay. also great. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What made you? what Well, uh, how did that? How did you cho- uh, land on that one as a song to do?
1: Um, this is more definitely uh, Wayne Wayne territory. It's like. It, he grew up on because of his parents and his grandparents whatever he grew up on being Crosby a lot more than I would have and we all love David Bowie. Um, adore David Bowie worship David Bowie, you know the altar of David Bowie. So um, it seems like a no-brainer really of the, the great iconic Christmas songs and it's really cool that uh, David Bowie wrote that extra bridge thing that wasn't part of the original. He just kind of knocked that off as from what I told from what I was told or what I've read. I don't know, just I don't know it just seemed like a no brainer to do that song. They're
0: yeah. going to do a Christmas song so. That's about I, it. I I I should correct cuz I am actually writing about that song right now. Um and it was two it was two people who were two writers who were working on the uh on the show. That the idea was that I guess Bowie had said he would not uh, he didn't want to sing little drummer boy. And so writers who were working on the show went one of whom had some background as a songwriter the they quickly like ran downstairs or ran to a piano and that they banged out the peace on earth part Uh, okay i
1: see what you're saying because yeah he never actually sings the little drummer boy part that's that's bane crosby and then he does the counterpoint with the peace on earth right and then was it david bowie that came up with that whole every child must be made aware did he write this was
0: uh no this was all evidently officially that part's credited to Buzz Cohen and Larry Grossman okay who are both TV uh, TV writers now I, be, I I've been I'm slightly suspicious of all these stories because they line up so perfectly in a way that stories almost never line up perfectly <laughs> that it feels that. to me like there are people who have all kind of adjusted the story to make it be all about this this weird moment where you had this like total crash of old, of, you know, old music and new music. Yeah. And, uh, and how bad this clash was, but that, and I, and, but I have seen them credited and I've also seen Buzz Cohen talk about writing it. So officially those are the, uh, that it was two people who are not normally songwriters. I see. Okay. But they got together and they figured out that part. And, um, well, so. for not being for not being songwriters, that's a pretty cool
1: set of chord changes they've got there to get back to the original key, you know. Um, anyway, but yep. yeah, I guess yeah, it's supposed to be painted painted as this, you know, this generational. Oh boy, this old timer, and here's the new guy, you know, uh, you know, you're like John Lennon, you know, you know, the bearded one, Nielsen, all that stuff, you know, Nielsen. Uh, but maybe maybe it wasn't that at all. Maybe being Crosby was like, "I'm a professional entertainer. This is what I do." This guy's a young entertainer. And this is what he does. We're just going to do this thing. But I
0: don't know. So yeah. <laughs> Who can no, know? I'm, I'm in the same place. I, I'm, I'm reading it, and people are saying, here's what happened, and here's how it didn't work. Yeah. But I, you know, say, when stories line up too well, I become suspicious. And um, I'm sure it didn't go easily, but I kind of <laughs> doubt it went as hard as people think. Or, you know, But we're you know, I'm speculating there. I
1: love it though, yeah. I have The Will Ferrell John C. Reilly. i think at the end he throws the grabs the tree and pushes it down or something. I'm fucking David yeah, Bowie totally. or something like that, but yeah. I just I like that they do every line verbatim till the very end. They like they stick to those exact lines, you know. You the new? Are you the new butler? Oh, it's been a long time since I've been the new anything. It's like, oh man, they really—they <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> But yeah, um, but back to the reason why we covered it, it just, that just seems like something we would, we would do, you know,
0: But without right. too much thinking. Yeah. So at the moment you don't have anything Christmas in the pipeline. No, I
1: really don't. Seems kind of strange. What is it? Uh, November 3rd, 2nd, yeah. November 2nd. You know, I need to, yeah, I need to get it together, man. Uh, I think the last thing I did on my own was it was, man, it's such an obscure thing. It's called, uh, if you Google it, you might find it. I think it's called, uh, Christmas on the Autobahn. And it's just me that I did for, uh, a recording studio in Norman, Oklahoma. They put together this little compilation that was like two or three years ago though. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have anything going right now. I, I gotta, I gotta get into something here, man. I'm glad, I'm glad we're having this discussion because it's November, you know, you gotta do yeah. something here. Tell me about Christmas on the Autobahn. They just wanted to. Maybe it was a benefit for something. This was two years ago or three years ago, and they just asked local artists to contribute some Christmas music of some kind. There was no real agenda. You could sing or not, and it's just a little instrumental. That I called it that because it reminded me of like if Craftwork had gotten with uh, with uh, man, I'm losing my mind. Um, Mannheim Steamroller. Craftwork I got with Mannheim Steamroller and they made some music, it would kind of sounded like what my thing sounds like. So I just, I called it Christmas on the Autobahn.
0: fit into the big sort of flaming lips picture in your mind?
1: Well, you know, I want to go back to uh, something we started doing. Um, We first started using live keyboards in 1995. I went and bought this uh, Roland, just a cheap like student learner keyboard, this Roland EP-707. And it's got kind of almost kind of realistic lo-fi piano patch, but it's got this fake string patch that's, you've heard it in a lot of our music. I've used it on Race for the Prize. I've used it on Do You Realize. I've used it. So many of our songs, you know, and it's just this cheap kind of uh sound. Um, and so, Christmas of 1995, we were on tour in the Midwest, and one night after we played the last song, I did my weird jazzy chord version of uh, White Christmas, and I played on that keyboard and went through the PA, and people just stood there like, "What is going on?" It's like kind of this magical moment because we had the Christmas lights and stuff, you know. And that was like, uh, I just did it off the cuff, but it was it was a, it was wonderful, you know. And I got done and people were just like kind of standing there. So I started doing that for every show on that Christmas tour. Um, So that, that always kind of stays in my mind, you know, and I really, to Wayne, if he could celebrate Christmas every day, he might, I mean, he's kind of a lunatic. He's kind of a lunatic about Christmas. Um, But are you asking about like the, using the dancing Santas
0: or just the whole, the whole big pageantry of it or a little bit of all of that. It's just it. It struck me when I was going through all this that it that in a lot of ways Christmas kind of makes sense for the Flaming Lips. Not even knowing what you were saying about Wayne, but on one hand you do have all of this visual iconography to play with, and that's something, especially in a kind of a nice domestic visual iconography. That's such a part of sort of the visual language of Flaming Lips. And at the same time, it's something that is on one hand fairly kind of open and sort of uh, unguarded and at, and at times tender, but because it also lives in, lives kind of a little bit in your parents' world, that it's also possible to feel some measure of distance from it. Or and so it feels like that it's something where your relationship to it, anyone's relation to it, maker or, or or a listener, feels complicated and feels like sort of it's in process. And um, so in, ways, hey, in a lot of ways it just seemed like it made so much sense, but I wonder if y'all had thought about at all about how these pieces fit together.
1: Well, I, you know, I think uh, people that don't like Christmas or Bah Humbug or whatever, that's totally cool, you know, whatever. Um, but I think we're just of the mind that, we really do love Christmas and, and why hide it? Who, you know, what, why not? You know, um, we, we all love Christmas. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how to say it. We, we don't try We try not to be guarded about it. Um, and I guess a lot of the show production could be at the shopping mall uh, when, when Santa's there and you sit on his lap and they've got the Christmas lights and shit, you know, it could be something like that. Uh, and that's just—I don't know how to explain. It. That's just part of the Flaming Lips trip, you know. It's a, a big celebration. There's going to be stuff. Things are going to be flying around. Um, yeah, um, I'm not—I'm not really sure how to put it in a, a very descriptive, thoughtful way. You know, it's just uh, something that—I mean, I do know that when I first joined the band, it was—it was, it was uh, Wayne made it. I learned. I discovered early on that Wayne really did love Christmas. Like, oh wow, this guy this is back when none of us had any money. You know, there was not really any success with the band and he put on a Santa hat, get in his big blue station wagon and drive from Norman, Oklahoma city and drop off gifts. And I'm like, this guy's pretty committed to Christmas, you know? Uh, uh. So then we started bonding on the music and years go by and the thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, I, I don't know how to explain it. We, I guess I, I can't really answer your question. We just, we embrace, we embrace all that stuff about Christmas, even though it can be hokey and it is part of your parents' world, but it can also make you feel more childlike too, and hey, there's nothing wrong with that, so you know what I mean?
0: Thanks to Stephen for the time and the talk. The Flaming Lips' most recent album, American Head, came out a few months ago, so obviously it's still on sale now. As Stephen said, the next episode of Sorcerer's Orphan is due out sooner or later, but you can subscribe to it now wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on back episodes. If you have a comment, a thought, or something to share, drop by 12 Songs of Christmas on Facebook. That's where I put Stuff I Find, including Calexico's cover of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Happy Christmas War Is Over from their upcoming Christmas album, Seasonal Shift. I'll also post a link to that in the new 12 Songs Spotify playlist, which includes one song by every artist I've talked to on the pod except two. Spotify doesn't have Aaron McEwan's anti-Christmas Fuck That or the nine-hour-long The 179 Days of Christmas. So they are unrepresented in the uh, playlist, but they are present in my heart. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. We'll finish with one more from Atlas Eats Christmas, or At Last It's Christmas. We played the Flaming Lips version of the title song with Yoko Ono and Sean Ono Lennon. Here's the Flaming Lips Imagine Peace version. Talk to you next week.